0: Hello, and welcome to the second series of Exploring Global Problems. In this podcast, we talk to academics from Swansea University, whose groundbreaking research is tackling global challenges, from health innovation to sustainable futures and the environment, from digital technologies to clean energy. My name is Sam Blaxland and today I'm joined by Dr. Matt Wall, Associate Professor in Political and Cultural Studies, Dr. Richard Thomas, Senior Lecturer in Media and Communication, and Professor of Politics Jonathan Bradbury, all of whom are from Swansea University. Their research explores a range of themes in politics from the influence of the internet and media on elections to political instability, bias and engagement. Matt, Richard, Jonathan, welcome to Exploring Global Problems. Thank Thank you. Hello. To begin, can I just get you all to summarise your research? And I think I'll probably give you about 60 seconds to do so, as there are three of you today. So, um, Matt first,
1: go for it.
2: My research is basically about how the internet and its uptake has affected political campaigning. I've looked at that in a variety of ways. I've looked at how politicians use the internet to campaign. I've looked at how, I suppose, the internet is generating a lot of information, especially in the form of gambling uh, data. And I've also looked at how you can create websites that actually influence the campaign, uh, as, as a non politician. So that that that's in
1: a brief summary, I suppose. Great, thank you, Richard. Thanks, Sam. Well, my research over the last sort of almost decade, I suppose, has been looking at the coverage of various elections in the media, particularly uh, the way that those are presented on the television. Television is still the sort of king of the jungle, really, in terms of where most people get their news from. So. Ranging from you know e- EU elections, general elections. I was involved in a, in a podcast recently with Matt, where we looked at the presidential election and some of the trends in the coverage of that. The other thing that I'm involved in at the moment is a is a big research project that we're looking with some colleagues from Cardiff at alternative online political media. So these would be websites like the Canary, another Angry Voice, Guido Forks, and so on. And we're looking at taking a sort of 360 degree look at those sites. We're looking at the way that they report politics. We're looking at the way that they promote themselves on social media. We've interviewed lots of the editors and journalists who work on those websites for their motivations and so on. And we're actually just about to move to our next phase where we're trying to engage with their audiences and find out what sort of impact these new alternative websites uh, reporting politics will have on on a wider population great thank you and uh, last but not least Jonathan
3: uh, yes I've, I've been studying the phenomenon of devolution it's an international phenomenon which has transformed states across the world and the questions that it raises are always whether devolution leads to simply the greater complexity of consolidated states or whether it actually challenges them and creates the possibility for them breaking up. At the same time, one also asks the question whether devolution enhances democracy, whether it uh, increases engagement and participation, the quality of representative democracy. And I've looked at these problems and issues, particularly in the context of the UK. And at the moment, it's a key time. Uh, There's a lot of questions being asked as to whether devolution has gradually led to major debates about the stability of the UK. And the quality of its democracy.
2: If you'd like to visit us and find out more about studying at Swansea University, visit swansea.ac.uk forward slash open days to book your place.
0: Okay, thank you. Lots of stuff to pick up there from all three of you, and we'll factor in everything you've said hopefully over the next 40 45 minutes or so. Can I just start by talking maybe about politics in general and something that maybe ties together all of all of your work. We hear a lot now about how politics has become polarized and that there aren't as many people or organizations occupying the sort of the middle ground of, of politics. Firstly, what do we mean by a middle ground? Is, is it fair to say that, you know, there's always been talk of a middle ground and actually it just simply moves, it's a movable feast. So how, how would you all define it? Maybe Matt first.
2: Yeah, it's 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 a kind of quite a deep Question. I'm I'm sorry. <laughs> sorry. Uh, no, that's okay. Uh, that's that's good. Um, because, yeah, I, I think I think traditionally we tend to think of the middle ground, uh, kind of in ideological terms, as being kind of the the average person in terms of left wing and right wing in, in in a given political system. And there's a lot of political science research that kind of says that you're better off occupying the middle ground as a political actor. You're more powerful from the from the center. Working with Richard actually has kind of turned me onto a different way of looking at it, which is really to do with bias and and neutrality, if that makes sense. So impartiality is a big is a big kind of principle in, in media research uh, that Richards introduced me to. Where the middle ground is is a slightly different thing. It's not it's not so much it's not so much I- your ideological position as a lack of ideology. And so yeah, I I, I and I guess polarization is the opposite of both things. Uh, in, in terms of your ideology, it's being at the extreme ends. To traditionally either left or right, though that's changing. And in terms of media, it's having a an entrenched ideological position that, that sort of informs all of your coverage.
0: And may, maybe, Richard, this is one for you, but is politics now, in 2021, here in the UK, but also globally, has it become more polarised, do you think, that more, more, more polarised than it has been, say, for the past few decades?
1: I, I, I think it has, to be honest, Sam. Just to pick up on on Matt's thread there, if you're talking about impartiality, I mean, the organization that we often think of in party with with impartiality would be the BBC. Now, the BBC back in 2007 was very keen to redefine the whole notion of impartiality. And traditionally, impartiality had been sort of conceptualized as a seesaw, So if you had a kind of, you know, a Labour politician, for example, you would then need to balance that off with a a Conservative politician. In 2007, they sort of reconceptualised that and said, well, actually, you know, there's more parties in the mix here than Labour and Conservative. We should have a different model. And they came up with this idea of a wagon wheel, which was sort of taking in a much broader spectrum of political and cultural opinion. If you look at the the kind of way that things have happened since then, they made a big effort in trying to say that, you know, we've got lots of different opinions now, but if you look at what's happened since, it's pretty well gone back to kind of Labour against Conservative, isn't it? A lot of these parties that were coming to the fore, for example, we've had, you know, the Lib Dems holding that balance of power, didn't they, in the coalition. Mm. Uh, We had UKIP obviously winning the 2014 EU elections, that sort of, earthquake, as to quote one of the papers that I wrote about that. But if you look at the, the work that we're doing at the moment, it, it's a fight between Labour and Conservatives. So I think it has become polarised. And I think that's become fueled as well by the media, or it's been fed by the media, or, you know, it's a, it's a sort of two-way relationship. I mean, we spent a lot of time, Matt and I and our colleague Elena, looking at the way the U- US election was being covered, and I mean, in, in, a, in a non-regulated media landscape like, like the U.S., you know, you, you can go for the extreme left or the extreme right. We, we don't have that here because we have regulation. But one of the think of the interesting things that's going to really challenge the whole notion of impartiality coming up is the launch of the new news channel, GB News. Uh, lots of publicity around that due to launch sometime in March the people who have been hired by GB News to this point have been quite easy to kind of categorise in terms of their ideology. So it'd be very interesting to see how they manage this whole business of sticking to the rules, being impartial, because they're going to be on British television. And if we're arguing
0: that the political system has become more polarised, and maybe that, you know, the middle ground is less occupied, what are the consequences of this? Because from a from an observer's point of view, you could actually argue that that just simply makes politics more
1: interesting. I mean, can I just come back and ju- just give a quick answer on that? I think one of the the dangers is 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 as the particularly the media coverage of politics becomes more polarized, and, and this has certainly happened, you know, in the US and other places. You then just tune into the channel that reflects your own opinion, and we call it the echo chamber. And essentially, what that means is you never get to hear anything to challenge. Your, your sort of predetermined opinions about things. So you never get the alternative or the, the other way of thinking about things. I think that's, to me, that's a fundamental danger. Jonathan, have you got any, any comments to make on this?
3: Well, yes, I guess, you know, Richard was sketching out there the pressures which were suggesting greater polarisation in politics. And, and I entirely agree that there are now many platforms for a greater variety of opinion to be voiced and, and opinions on the extremes. But if you do look at the Labour-Conservative battle at the British level, there is something of a convergence in the the political ground over which they're fighting, which is the acceptance that the role of the state and public spending is going to be substantially higher over the next five to ten years. It's a, a political battle over which party can appear most visionary and competent in occupying that political space. And in the two political leaders the parties have, you know, they've they've essentially seen off the more potentially radical leaders of their parties. Both Johnson and Starmer are people who are tacking towards the middle and are competing to hold on to their hardcore votes and the centre ground. So I think it is, personally, I think there is a, a classic return to centre ground politics.
0: I think something that is implicit in all of what the three of you have said so far Although it hasn't been directly mentioned, is that the internet is playing a huge role in how both politics is reported, but also how everybody, the general public, absorbs their politics. I just about remember when the internet was really rolling out, and of course it was seen as this almost utopian way in which we could we we, we could get lots of information and, and become more knowledgeable. But of course there are really there are negative consequences of the internet. Too, aren't there, especially when it comes to politics and, and and the reporting of of politics? So, how has the internet affected politics in general, Matt? Maybe
2: you're right to say that when the internet became kind of a mass uh, communications technology, there was a wave we call we call it in my field cyber optimism, which was well, look at all these uh, advantages for, for for democracies that the internet can bring, not only in terms of information availability, but in terms of, I mean, at the moment we're all having a chat and none of us are sitting in the same room, right? Mm-hmm. I tend to think it's not so much the internet as the political and economic structure within which the internet has evolved and is embedded. And that, that structure is one where, you know, I think that the, the famous characterization of it is the, the attention economy, right? Where literally the, the business model of these major online companies is to, is to hold you in their web structure and And watch you act there and gather information about you, and then sell that information to advertisers uh, who target who target you with their content, right? So we all have this experience. You know you search for, I don't know, a pair of football boots, and for the next two weeks, all you see on the on on your social media is football boot ads, right? What that means is that all the business incentives that go with the kind of technological structure of the internet, drive both stuff that you already are likely to join into, which is going to agree with what you already think, and stuff that's sensationalist, right? We have this term clickbait that, 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 that you're all probably familiar with, right? People write headlines when there's no story underneath, because the objective is just to get you to click through the headline. And so I, do, I don't tend to see it so much as the internet in and of itself. I, I think it's the internet embedded in the society that we have.
1: Would anybody else like to pick up on the, the impact
2: the internet's had?
1: I was just gonna just gonna mention the the impact of of social media, really, because obviously that's all tied into this. We spent a lot of time back before Christmas talking about Donald Trump's use of Twitter, and I think <laughs> you know he he has been at the forefront of really sort of redefining the way that politicians can get their messages out. I think up until you know certainly in the last few elections, perhaps when, when Tony Blair, for example, and alistair Campbell were kind of running that, that campaign for the for Labour back then, they were getting increasingly frustrated that their messaging was being kind of corrupted by journalists, you know, it was being reinterpreted and repackaged for, you know, for the public. And and of course what social media has done is given politicians this opportunity to bypass mainstream traditional media and just talk directly to their to their public. And we can see, can't we, the way that Donald Trump use Twitter, it's like, well, I'm not, you know, nobody's talking about me. So let's get them all talking about me again. And I think, you know, the work that we did in around the 2016 election really showed, the data really showed that he was given lots of opportunities to, to, to speak to the public. But most of those were through through his Twitter account. And, and of course, what he was able to do was to use his Twitter account to denigrate and trash mainstream media. Mainstream media were picking up on that story, and, and in doing so, we're giving him this kind of blanket coverage. Uh, and I think it was a real a real sort of validation of this idea that there's only one thing worse than being talked about, and that's not being <laughs> talked about, because that's basically why he won the first time round, wasn't it? It, It's because of the way that he was able to bypass traditional media and say, well, they're all telling lies about me. This is the truth, and I'm speaking to you directly. And what did he have, 90 million Twitter followers or something?
0: It was a fascinating phenomenon, wasn't it? Because even though he didn't like the mainstream media, and I don't think many of them liked him, he was such a good story that so many people still wanted to to focus on him. Do you think it was sinister that he had his Twitter account shut down? Because essentially, that was his main means of political communication, wasn't it?
1: Well, it was. And I think, I mean, there's all sorts of questions about, you know, freedom of speech and all of that kind of stuff. But I think the riot, Capitol Hill, all of that, I think that was even too far for some of the social media platforms are already kind of built this scaffolding of protection during the election to say, look, it's likely that he's going to deny the result. Are we going to have all these sort of disclaimers around it and so on? What was almost more pivotal, to be be honest, around around the the, the previous election just gone was the way that his words being broadcast at a press conference were actually kind of interrupted by journalists, where, where journalists actually cut in and say, look, we're not going to broadcast the words of the of the sitting president who's speaking live to the nation because we think that this is all a load of tosh. This is our interpretation and you're going to hear us rather than him. I think that was a major moment for broadcasting because, and a dangerous moment in some points because at what, what point do journalists take this sort of editorial role and say, well, actually, you're not going to hear the elected president. You're going to hear what we think about him. And I think that was you know, that was almost more important, I think, than than the social media stuff that was going on in in the 2020 presidential election. It's fascinating. It's murky waters, isn't it? But Mm. um, Jonathan, I wondered
0: whether having all this information at your fingertips about politics and what politicians think and what they say, has that had an impact on what undecided voters might do in the decisions that they make?
3: Yes, I'm sure it does. The thing that strikes me so much is The way in which elections have been analysed over the last couple of decades has has placed more and more stress on the importance of party leaders and how they evoke the positions of their parties and give a sense of competence. And people's perceptions of leaders and the information they have about leaders and their views almost becomes a shortcut for many voters in deciding who they're going to vote for. So I think the internet has become actually a crucial vehicle. For that that relationship between leader and voter, and how voters think about their parties through the leaders, I've often thought about how previous key party leaders may have used the internet. I, you know, I think back to, you know, what what would Margaret Thatcher and Tony hmm. Blair, yeah. you know, if they'd had Twitter available to them, how they might have just Alistair Campbell advising Tony Blair yeah. on how he might have used Twitter day by day. Blair must look at it and think well, what a massive device that would have been for me in in my leadership of communicating to the public. Mm. So it is obviously a, a key thing and I but I suppose the danger of it is that it it starts to push away from more in-depth debate of issues mm. and uh, you know the serious things that actually elections uh, and campaigns are are trying to deal with it 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 diminishes debate often
1: I think that's right, Jonathan. I mean, if you look at the way that pol- lots of politicians use social media, it's not to promote their own case necessarily, or to sort of nuance any policy that they're developing. it's more it's more a case of um attacking the other side, isn't it?
2: Although i may I might counter that a little bit because if if I think about election coverage when I was growing up, it's not that it was characterized by a particularly erudite discussion of policies. I mean, I remember as a teenager when Tony Blair, first one, and a lot of that was a sort of, again, a very personalized kind of slick spin campaign. Things will only get better. Do you remember the, they kind yeah. of had a theme song. I read, yeah. Phil, do you ever read Philip Gould's book? He was a kind of one of the kind of underneath Alistair Campbell. I, I mean, they spent maybe a year redesigning the rose, the symbol of the party. That was a huge project. It was still a rose. and they they gave a lot uh, you know a lot of time to that to that to that side of things so i think the internet and just just to say one last thing increasingly on the internet if you look at the latest trends like long format uh, and more detailed stuff is really coming in now yeah so you know probably the most successful podcast is is the joe rogan uh, podcast and that's 2 3 hours long uh, most most times and so i i i think actually the internet is moving into there's a slightly different phase where if you look a little bit, there's there's actually a big space to explore things in, in much greater depth. Although I do agree that the, the trend maybe heretofore has been reductive. If you'd like to find out more about our research at Swansea University, visit swansea.ac.uk forward slash research.
0: Well, you mentioned podcasts, Matt, but you and Richard, uh, along with Elena Kilby, have hosted the Horse Race Politics podcast, haven't you? And that was during the last American elections. So can you tell us a bit more about that, and also particularly about how you use political gambling analysis to make your arguments there?
2: Yeah, well, so the motivation for it is is a very personal one. Essentially, you know, when you're an academic, and I'm sure everyone on this podcast is familiar with it, you might do a piece of research into contemporary politics, and by the time it's published, it might be two years later. Right. And not only that, when you want to tell your parents or your, your friends about what you're studying, you show them your article and they've no, they can't make head nor tail of it. Right. Most, most of my stuff is quantitative research. So in the first place, I thought the podcast would be a better format to, to communicate to people, because I do feel our research has generated some insights. And then with regards to the gambling market stuff, really, that was just driven by what I, what I found when I was analyzing campaigns is that like, People are bet. people bet on campaigns. It's a big tradition in Ireland. Actually, oftentimes you'll see a party leader will do a photo call in, in the bookies shop in the run up to the campaign, betting on their own party to show that they think they're going to do well, you know, um, so I kind of grew up with that. But then I realized, yeah, this is a lot better than opinion poll data, because like I think in the in the Trump uh, campaign that we covered, you know, it was over 500 million pounds was bet just in one betting company on that election. And so those bets are happening every second of every day from all over the world, whereas a poll might, might come out every two to three days. Um, so you get a very granular ability to, to see, in a sense, in a, in a quantified way, how people are responding to stories. And we certainly had a few stories, you know, when, when Donald Trump was hospitalized with COVID. We could see before the opinion polling caught up what people were making of that. And then I wanted to layer that onto the kind of narrative of the campaign
1: and the coverage, which is where Richard and Elena came in. We were looking at um the kind of real-time coverage as it was happening on television, on social media, on, on you know, mainstream both both sides of, of the Atlantic. I think the fact that we were we were flying by the seat of our pants quite a lot of the time, weren't we, Matt? I remember that day that Trump was hospitalized, um <laughs> I mean, you had to kind of re, you had to reshoot in inverted commas, the kind of opening, the intro, didn't you? To just to kind of relate to the to, to the fact that that had happened overnight. So it it was great. I I would want to underline what you said about you know being being able to engage with people. You know, I had people who you know would would never uh, have ever have dreamt of reading anything that I'd written in an academic realm, listening in, interested, picking up information a couple of sort of conversations with friends about those things that wouldn't have happened if I'd have written a journal article. So I think it was, I mean, it really convinced me that podcasts for, for research were a really great way of of getting your message out there and showing, you know, let's be fair, we've got all got a duty to show the public value of research. Mm-hmm. So can I, can I just unpick this
0: for a second and just take it back to its real essentials? Matt, is the argument that the way that people behave when they when they bet on elections is actually a more reliable indicator of how they'll behave in the polling booth. Because by putting their own money on it, they are very clearly stating what their intentions are.
2: Not, not, not quite, Sam, because obviously you don't have any kind of representative sample of the population mm. betting, right? I mean, people who bet are different in uh, several ways. I mean, so for example, the polling data will influence the betting markets, right? Mm. But what, what, what betting markets offer you is a kind of a nearly like a, a filter to, to process all of the information in a campaign and what the odds that are available at any time on, on the outcomes kind of reflect the, mark, the collective opinion of everybody betting. And so the real value isn't necessarily in being better predictors, though, though they, they tend to be. Um, not not always, but the real value is in their ability to react to, to news as it happens and give I you a see. sense of when we had to re-record the, the bit for, for Donald Trump going into hospital, the betting markets, the odds had shifted, indicating like he was 10% less likely, more or less overnight to win the presidency. So the, the polling didn't have time to process that. And so much happened in such a short space of time that you couldn't know which event was driving the numbers, you know? Whereas the betting market literally in, in seconds, in minutes after that happened, um, was able to react. I mean, actually, the reaction was so strong, they had to shut down some of the betting markets because the volume of, of trading was so high. Um, so that's the value. It's, it's in the dynamics of the campaign to a greater extent than the prediction of the outcome. I've, I've got it. I understand. That's great. Thank
0: you. You mentioned in that podcast something very interesting, which is that it's sometimes better for candidates not to talk about Policy. So, can you can you tell us a bit more about this and expand upon that?
1: <laughs> In all of the the work that we've done over looking at elections, this has been this has been the kind of the Hardy annual, if you like. This is the key question about the way that media covers uh, politics, uh, particularly elections, which is: are you focusing on people's policies, or you are are you focusing on what we call the process? There's a, a kind of more scholarly way of describing that. It's called the horse race. Are you talking about everything in terms of who's going to win, the latest poll, the latest betting odds, you know, the, the latest gaffe, the latest sort of argument, the, the latest election event, or are you talking about the the nuances of people's policy proposals? And of course, the argument there is that the media are finding all of these other stuff, the process stuff, more interesting. It's got greater news value quite often. But of course, it's very transient. So the fact that you know you remember some of the things that have happened out on the road. Do you remember Gordon Brown's terrible, you know, Jillian Duffy moment in two thousand and ten that really mm-hmm. derailed his his programme? I mean that that had lots of coverage, didn't it?
0: That was when that was the bigoted woman comment. Wasn't bigoted it? Uh, the woman, bigoted yeah.
1: woman, yeah. When he had his microphone left on and he didn't realise. Now that's obviously very newsworthy. Understandably, the media are going to focus on that. But it's kind of gone. It's it, it's finished with. In the meantime, the the policies that people are proposing, those are going to have long-lasting effects on the general public. You know, for example, we're looking at now that the way that the policy for getting out of the the pandemic and moving forward, that's going to have huge implications for everybody. It's going to have a much more of an implication for, for us all than a spat, you know, someone misspeaks on the radio you know, somebody trips over an election, anything like that. These are the, the things that are getting all the news, but they mean nothing really in the overall scheme of things. So this is one of the things that we look at all the time in election coverage is how much policy versus how much process. I, I would say, we've, we've mentioned the BBC already, our research across the world suggests that in any nation that's got public service broadcasting, you are more likely to see on the television... Uh, more information about policy than you are about process just just to come back on
2: Sam, the the mention of you're better off not talking about policy as a as a campaigner i mean that's not necessarily true that can be true so it it came up in the context of joe biden and uh, pretty much all three of us on the podcast agreed the best thing joe biden can do is nothing right like donald trump was was running his campaign for him and all joe biden had to do was be a kind of Blank alternative as much as as much as possible, and Joe Biden was really well suited to that to that role. But if if you think about Jeremy Corbyn in in 2017, uh, in particular, he had the opposite problem. I mean, everything was about his personality, and everything was was negative. You know, you might remember the BBC carrying a story about Jeremy Corbyn had a picture of him kind of mocked up against Moscow with a kind of a Russian style hat in the background. And so, actually, in the campaign, he was able to talk about well, we want to, I don't know, um, end tuition fees. He had, lo- he had a number of very popular policies. The Labour's Manifesto coming out was a key turning point in that campaign. And so it's not, So what, what I'm trying to say is it's not always advantageous not to avoid policy, but there are circumstances where, where it is. And usually that's where you're ahead. You know, if you're ahead and especially you're seen as more competent or more, more capable, going back to what Jonathan was saying, well, then you don't want to alienate people by talking about policy. I mean, remember Theresa May did exa- made exactly that mistake in 2017 when uh, she, she brought out in the, camp- in the manifesto proposals to deal with social care through a, uh, an alternative funding system It was called the dementia tax. It completely derailed her campaign. Strong and stable leadership was exposed because she wasn't able to, to adapt to that. So it's, it's a strategic decision to talk about uh, policy rather than it's always good or always bad is what
1: I'd say. Just coming back to that idea of the of the, of the policy versus process. In two thousand and fifteen, after the two thousand and fifteen election, we interviewed quite a number of broadcast editors of the of the main TV channels, and they all expressed great frustration that when they were provided with politicians to interview, they didn't want to talk about policy. They wanted to talk about who was going to win. They wanted to talk about all that newsworthy stuff. and And their argument to us was, look. We want to report the policy, but they won't talk about it. It's really frustrating. So I think we've got to balance off the fact that this is all not always the fault of the media. This is sometimes politicians just managing their messaging and, and what they want to talk about. They want to avoid stuff maybe that's talking about half-baked policy ideas that have been sort of ill-conceived, you know, with the, with the, with the funding sort of worked out on the back of a cigarette packet. They want to avoid all of that. But they're quite happy to talk about stuff that's being published that day, like you know, polling results and opinion polls and all of that kind of stuff. So it's not just the fault of the media. I think it's politicians too are complicit in all of that.
0: Well, can I can I pick up with you, Richard? Then just some of these issues about the media, because obviously this is the main focus of your your research. You look at journalism. Now, from a personal perspective, I'm very I'm very old fashioned in the way that I consume my my news. I, I still. Buy a range of newspapers most week mm-hmm. and, and sort of read through them, and I find that quite gratifying because when you when you flick through a newspaper, you you come across stories that you wouldn't expect to see or you wouldn't click on necessarily on on the internet. But I I, I recognise that I'm very rare in, in that mm-hmm. kind of way, and that, that's the way that I soak up soak up my news. So how do you think people broadly engage with news now, and and, and how do different kinds of media report things in different kinds of ways
1: well it's it's very it's very age kind of related this because there's a a digital news report comes out by made by reuters every year and they basically look at how people are consuming the news and one of the things that they they report every year is that people in the kind of 50 plus age bracket are you know like you not suggesting you're 50 plus sam but you're you're a traditionalist that as much as you're probably watching the TV, you're buying a newspaper and so on, you know, if you're younger than 25, you're probably going to be picking up all of your news online. And of course, that idea that you were suggesting there, where you're consuming a news brand, you're reading the whole of a newspaper and you're acquiring this knowledge as you go along, you know, young people are not consuming their media like that. They're doing it all very much on a piecemeal basis. They're looking at individual stories that have been shared on social media so they're not reading and consuming a whole news brand they're consuming stories that will have been shared by their friends and people that they know so i think it's very much based on 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 how old you are i think that the numbers are very clear there but i think when we come to research things we're still we're still focusing a lot on the television because the television not only you know is the most consumed place for news for for adults in this country, Ofcom confirm that every year. The online news is catching that up, but but slowly, I would say. Not only is it the the main the most consumed platform, the other thing of course, it's the only regulated platform. So there seems little point in 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 sort of researching what you're going to find in the Guardian and what you're going to find in the telegraph, because you can pretty well tell that before you even start your research. What's more interesting and what helps us to understand whether journalism per se is functioning in this country is whether the people who are obliged to be impartial are actually being impartial so you know are they giving both sides of the story are the bbc itv sky channel 4 are they you know giving this range of opinion that sort of idea of that wagon wheel that the bbc wanted back in 2007 but actually seems to have gone the other way since. So I think it's quite age-related, Sam, in answer to your question.
2: If you're a teacher and you'd like our help with talking about this topic in the classroom, visit swansea.ac.uk forward slash teachers for more information.
0: I I do a bit of work with the BBC and and I would say that I do have sympathy with people who are trying to be impartial because it's actually a difficult concept to get very right, isn't it?
1: Yeah, no, it's it, it's a tough
2: one. Well, they say they say you're being impartial if if both sides are annoyed at you. That's usually a good sign, right? If you're getting Absolutely. complaints from the left and the right, most journalists in those kind of environments see that as a kind of a check mark that that they're doing their job. I,
0: I can also promise you that I'm much closer to 25 than 50, but I'm an anomaly. I do. Uh, I do. We'll read, take I, your word for I, that. I, so. Yes.
2: <laughs> um, but, well, Sam, just just to say, there's like an interesting concept that's com- coming out in in the internet politics sphere is is called hybrid media. And and what that's saying is, well, even even somebody who's just reading a newspaper, um, like yourself, a lot of the stories that that newspaper is generating are coming from created to some extent online, you Indeed. know. And at the same time, a lot of the stories that someone's reading online are, are are mainstream media stories, right? So you'll see a clip from the BBC or a story from whatever newspaper. And so, I- increasingly, the the divide between those platforms is becoming porous it's it's not so easy to separate them out because they they affect each other.
0: Jonathan, uh, can i turn to you? Your your work looks at regional democracy specifically in the UK and Wales. Can i just focus on this issue of engagement to begin with and i'm going to talk about two big big topics or i want to talk about two big topics which is Brexit and COVID-19. How have those two things affected engagement with UK politics. Let's let's do Brexit first, because just just from my perspective, I've, I'm thinking back to 2016. I was in my early twenties then, and it was one of the first occasions where I saw a lot of people my in my age group very almost suddenly engaged in the big issue of the day. So, did, did Brexit cause a surge of political engagement?
3: It, well, it most certainly did. I, I think that Brexit created a, a a new cleavage in British politics between obviously those who sought to leave or remain in the, in the European Union. It uh, didn't run across party lines. There were, there were different views in uh, each of the two main parties. And the referendum inevitably, I think, animates opinion, animates debate and animates opinion. And so it did. I think it created what political scientists like to call a critical juncture in British politics, which is where everything is shaken up uh it, it creates a, a new arena for debate and the political parties are scrabbling to react to it to see how voters are falling out over it and where they should position themselves in reaction to it a lot of the time parties like to feel as though they're guiding public opinion on this issue it's 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 an issue which came in from as you know the 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 various forms of parties that wanted to leave the European Union, going back to James Goldsmith's funded referendum party through to UKIP and the Brexit party that forced the Conservative Party essentially to engage with it. So it came in from outside the mainstream. To go back to your original theme, the centre ground, Brexit was an issue that came in from outside the centre ground and shook things up. And I think that inevitably created... um, a greater sense of political engagement across the generations and uh, and interestingly as 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 we we're all often reflect on in elections older people vote more in elections and that that appears also to have been the case in the brexit referendum as well and that may well have been decisive
0: and and what about covid How has that changed the way in which people are engaging with politics do you think
3: One of the central ways in which elections are interpreted these days is through this uh, perception that 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 voters are often agreed on the sorts of things they want from government. You know, they want an economy well run. uh, They want security. They want good public health services. They're often agreed on it on what they want to see happen. And so, political debate can, rather than a debate about issues, it can be around competence and how well they see government performing and how well they feel the opposition are offering a more competent approach to dealing with things. COVID-19 pandemic is a classic challenge for competence of government. And it's been fascinating, for example, of observers of the Labour Party in recent times that they can have gone from this huge focus on issues under Jeremy Corbyn to Keir Starmer Focusing for most of the last 12 months on the perceived incompetence of the Johnson, you know, of the Johnson government and how Labour could offer a more competent alternative. So a lot of the politics of debating COVID-19 have been more around, less around fundamental issues, which Brexit exercised. The COVID-19 pandemic has, has, has raised much more debate around the competence of government, and that's also played into the national the, the, the kind of territorial constitutional question as well where voters in Scotland and Wales and indeed in Northern Ireland have been confronted with this issue of whether they feel their devolved government has shown more or less competence than the UK government and that affects their views on the on the on devolution and the territorial future.
1: Jonathan, I was going to sorry to cut in. Sam, I was just going to ask Jonathan whether you think that the COVID pandemic has in any way helped people in Wales uh, to understand devolution a bit more. I think one of the the key things that we see in uh, in in sort of network coverage is there's there's this sort of regular default when they talk about you know in the early days of the pandemic, Boris Johnson is closing down the nation. Well, of course, he wasn't closing down Wales; he was closing down England, and England is sometimes used as that yeah. sort of easy default for the nation. But but the fact that during this pandemic we are, we are more interested, as, as people living in Wales, about what Mark Drakeford has got to say and the way that he is talking about things, do you think that's helped people to understand that some of these key issues like education and health and so on are actually devolved? You took the question right out of my mouth. <laughs> <laughs> well,
3: yeah, Sam asked whether COVID-19 had, had, had increased... Engagement, and it's clearly the case that you know we've had you know five six elections since devolution began in Wales, turnout always below fifty percent. A fairly long-standing lack of appreciation of exactly what the powers of the National Assembly for Wales have been. Now that now the the Welsh Parliament, and and actually health powers along with education have been the two key sets of powers that the Welsh Assembly has had and yet the appreciation of that has often been very low and so I think the COVID-19 pandemic has very clearly put it in front of people that in this area Welsh government is responsible, it takes decisions yeah. and I mean to come back to you I, I what a fascinating part of government management of the pandemic is this focus on the the first minister or health minister press conference, you know, however often it's held. And and it's interesting that, you know, Boris Johnson clearly got rather fed up with holding them. So he had a, you know, he broke with it, didn't he? He held them for quite a while and then he suspended them. But in Scotland and Wales, they've continued. And I, I certainly think they've had their interest in that. Scottish government has wanted to show how they have been in charge of dealing with the pandemic in Scotland. Same in Wales, but I think, Mark Drakeford has been well aware that it's by continuing to hold a regular press conference, he's kept it in front of the public, that the Welsh government's responsible for this, and you should look to the government for how decisions are made. It's been very helpful in that way.
2: I was just going to say, if you look at Mark Drakeford, it's been a miracle for him, because when he when he replaced uh, Carwyn Jones, I, I had real fears about his capacity to present in, in the media. He's certainly a less obviously charismatic person, let's say. And this was the perfect issue for him. This is this is the one issue where you kind of want somebody boring in charge, right? It, going back to what Jonathan said about Brexit and COVID, those two effects on British politics were nearly in a completely opposite direction when it comes to ideology versus competence. I mean, Brexit was nearly purely ideology, right? And Boris Johnson is many things, but he's not really known for competence and detail, right? And he he wrote the he wrote the Brexit wave, and then right in the first year of his his uh, majority government, along comes a pure, like Jonathan said, a pure competence what, what we call a valence issue in, in electoral analysis, and so it's 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 like two waves crashing into each other, going in totally opposite directions, which is where we are in British politics now, as I see it. Jonathan, can I just pick up on something there
0: about turnout, which is that you know you mentioned that turnout for the Welsh Parliament elections is often below fifty percent. It's you know it's often um, twenty percentage points lower than than turnout in Wales for general elections for for Westminster elections. Now that's obviously a, a theme that you can see to some extent across across the world. Low turnout elections. Is there a way of, in inverted commas, solving this? How do you how do you get people to engage with democracy if indeed they want to?
3: fairly conventional way uh, in which low turnout has been understood is 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 to suggest that devolved elections have have been seen by the voters as as second order elections they are of less importance than yeah. uk general elections and that they you know originally people developed the theory of second order elections in relation to European parliament elections that they would see them as less important less people would vote and that they might be inclined actually to use that that election as a way of commenting on UK politics rather than actually what was at stake in the election. And that has plagued devolved elections a bit as well, that that sense in which they're second order, that it's, it's not simply that less people will vote because they don't think they're important. It's also that they might actually use their vote to comment on the scene of UK politics. I think the difference comes since 2011, the the uh, Welsh parliament as it is now has primary legislative powers and since the legislation in 2014 and 2017 uh, the Welsh parliament has income tax raising powers and it tends to be the case that when bodies decide taxes that more people vote mm. they see them as more first order and as a as a researcher on kind of multi-level democracy you know I've been fascinated actually by the potential that has come with the expansion of income tax powers in Scotland they they have you know huge autonomy over setting income tax levels in Wales very very considerable leeway to vary income tax levels from the UK level but against that actually currently seemingly very little ambition to do that the parties are being very cautious About possible proposals, you might expect the Labour Party or Plaid Cymru to suggest higher tax levels or higher taxes on wealthier people. You might expect the Conservatives in Wales, or indeed in Scotland, to go for tax-cutting proposals. But we haven't really got that kind of vital party debate over tax at the devolved level, and I think until we do, we're not quite going to make a difference to turnout levels.
0: A final word, if you don't mind, from all of you, just based on what we've just been saying. Are we, in a nutshell, are we going to see an uptick in the number of people turning out to vote in the forthcoming devolved parliament elections?
2: I'll pick Matt. I'll pick Matt first. It's a tremendously difficult thing to predict because, obviously, these the upcoming uh, devolved elections are the first to take place in this COVID context. I mean, we're not. Even totally sure that the elections will take place uh, as, as scheduled in May at the moment, right? And so you have again. I do think there's been an uptick in interest and understanding, kind of what what Jonathan and Richard were saying. But set against that, you've all the, the changes that that COVID has wrought on our our entire culture of mobility in society, and we haven't set up an online voting portal. So it's very difficult. I, I, I'm afraid I can't just give you a, a one word prediction. Uh, it's diffi- difficult. There's cross there's cross pressures, you know. But you gave me a very succinct answer, which is great. Richard,
0: what, what what do you think very briefly?
1: I think, Sam, it's dependent on the level to which people engage with local news and regional news. We we, we know, we've, we've, we can empirically show this, that if you're interested in Welsh politics and you're watching BBC Network, you're not going to hear much about what's going on in Wales. So I think Engaging with local newspapers, engaging with local radio, local television is important because that's the only place that you're going to hear about the issues and the policies that people have that that are pertinent to this forthcoming set of elections.
0: Gosh, local news—we could do a whole, uh, whole podcast on on, on that too. Uh, Jonathan, a final word from you?
1: Yes, well, I said a
3: moment ago, money tends to get people out in elections, and I, I tend to think that won't in these devolved elections. But of course. Uh, One of the things that has been pushed on by the presence of the Johnson government and Brexit and the pandemic is greater debate of the independence issue in both Scotland and to some extent more so in Wales as well. And there's going to be a huge effort in Wales, just as there is in Scotland, to make the elections about the constitutional question. Clyde Cymru in Wales will try and make this devolved election this May a critical election in Welsh election terms, where they change people's perceptions that this is an opportunity to vote on the constitutional future of Wales. And if they manage to succeed in that, then I think they will drive up interest in the election and and a higher turnout. But obviously, the other parties who don't want to see independence will be trying to to combat that. Well,
0: thank you all three. I wish we had uh, more time. We could talk for hours sort of Joe Joe Rogan podcast style, but <laughs> unfortunately we've, uh, we've, we've got to draw a line under it there. So if you want to find out more about Matt, Richard and Jonathan's research, you can visit their staff profiles on the Swansea University's website. To find out more about this podcast and Swansea University's research, visit swansea.ac.uk forward slash research. That's all from us today. Thanks for listening, and thank you again to our guests, Dr. Matt Wall, Dr. Richard Thomas, and Professor Jonathan Bradbury. If you've enjoyed this episode, please subscribe, rate, and review. I'm Sam Laxland, and that was Exploring Global Problems from Swansea University.